Teaching from the Old Testament is not an easy task in preparing, but it's always, as Matt said last week, it's always a a really exciting uh, challenge as you study and as you prepare. These two books of Ezra and Nehemiah are awesome books. I think it's very, very, very timely by the Spirit of God that we are going through this together right now. I've entitled this morning's teaching, The Restoration of All Things. And aren't we not living in a time when all things need to be restored? More than ever, we're aware of the need for God's restorative work on the earth and in lives and in the church today. So once again, I'll read uh, Ezra 1, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll just look at at this chapter and uh, hear what God wants to say to us as we begin today. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and you might want to underline the word stirred up, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, that's pretty funny, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is Judah, in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit, and here it is again, God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. The Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithredith, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and a thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the work that you are doing today on the earth. May we see your hand. May we have eyes to see what you are doing. May we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying today to the church. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for the truth of it. And we pray today that you would speak to us for your name's sake, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by saying, just as an overview, um, before we really look at the chapter, there's not a lot in the chapter that is unique to study out so much. There are some things I want to point out. As you go through some of these chapters in in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you're gaining principles. That's what we're doing. We're gleaning uh, principles from the historical uh, 
context and, and the historical account that has been given to us. So we're not going to study each verse, verse by verse, and, and you know, talk about each verse per se, um, but we are going to preach through it and, and look at what God is saying to us through these two books. But there are two main emphases today that I want to begin by drawing our attention to regarding these two books primarily, Ezra and Nehemiah, and this time of Israel's history that I think serve as encouragement and exhortation for us as the church today. The first is this, and this is maybe sounds very common to you or very, um, um, you know, you would go, well, yeah, we know that. Obvious, thanks for the word. I couldn't think of the word obvious, the obvious word obvious. <laughs> the first is that we, listen to this, we must interpret all of history through the lenses of God's actions. And primarily and predominantly God's actions with his people. We must always interpret all of history through the lenses of the actions of God with his people. This is how Israel saw and understood their history always. They knew that he is the God of history. His will is revealed through the historical process. And there are some great prayers in these two books that reveal their understanding of this truth. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 1, and Nehemiah 9. When you read those prayers, you hear that they understand everything that happened in the past to Israel is interpreted as the will of God. Their times of decline, even their times of captivity, as well as the times of success and blessing and fruitfulness, were all ascribed to his will. And likewise, the times they were living in, in which Ezra and Nehemiah were living and Zerubbabel, the times they were living in, all of those experiences that they were going through were ascribed to his will. Can you and I say that today as well? I know we can say it intellectually. We can affirm that truth. Can you say that in your heart tomorrow? Regardless of what comes. That God is at work on the earth today bringing about his will and that history must be understood through the actions of God, predominantly as they deal with his people. The whole book of Revelation, if you were with us through that study, we saw and we, and we learned and we've come to understand that the book of Revelation is the story of the church from the time of its birth to the time of the return of Christ. That is the book of Revelation. It's the story of God's actions with his church on the earth from the beginning of when it, it began to the time when Christ would return. So everything in Revelation is the account of the history of man on the earth as God is dealing and working and doing all these things for the sake of his people, his church, as it was with Israel. Let's read a couple of these prayers quickly. Let's look at Ezra 9, verses 7 through 9, just so you can get uh, the, the understanding of the impact of how they saw this. Ezra 9, his prayer just a couple of verses, 7 through 9. As he's praying, Ezra says, verse 7, Ezra 9, 7, From the days of our fathers 
To this day, we have been, listen, in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Wow. Everything in Ezra's prayer through the lenses of the hand of God upon the people of God, working about his purposes, even in the hearts of foreign kings. You think Putin or Chi are doing whatever they want? No. God's hand is at work on the earth. It's God. Not that he's the author ever of evil. I'm not saying that. But God is orchestrating events for you and me. This is the history that's understood by the people of God. Look, Ezra 9, excuse me, Nehemiah 9. We'll just look at this one quickly. 9, 16 through 21. Very similar. Different man now praying. Nehemiah 9, 16 through 21. But they, our fathers, they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments, Nehemiah prays. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, thank goodness, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf. See, even in the midst of great sin. Even when they had said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You're in your great, you and your great mercy did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way that they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. And you did not withhold your manna from their mouth and give them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. I mean, I don't think we have really come to the point where we believe that God is at work even in the midst of our failures, even in the midst of our shortcomings, even in the midst of, let me say this, our sin. Yes, it grieves him. Yes, we will bear the consequences of it. Yes, he disciplines us. No, it is not something to ever be taken lightly. But even in the midst of our greatest grief, either committed by us or toward us or against us, or by the world we live in, God is with us. Not only, though, is he with us, he's at work bringing about his purposes. I want to encourage you today, church. If you're going through something very, very hard, If you can't see the hand of God, you need to believe this to be true. It's a great encouragement 
to the heart of the believer. God's hand has been and is upon our lives, directing the affairs of men to accomplish his purposes for us in our lives, in our families, and in his church, in order to accomplish his ultimate purpose, which is to bring glory to his son, Jesus Christ. And if you're able to look back as I am, and I know all of us are, if you can look back in your life and see the hand of God on your life in the past, I want to tell you that you will one day be able to look back to this time and see the hand of God on your life in this time as well. Regardless of whatever you might be going through. So this truth is meant to bring much comfort to the people of God and to the saint, to their hearts. God is true. His word is true. His promises are unchanging for us. And this truth became a primary motivation for the Jews to return to Jerusalem after their time of exile. This is why they came back, because they believed this truth. And you have to follow the logic of that. The reason they wanted to return is because they believed that God had been at work in them through their time of exile. And they knew that God was faithful to the promises he had made to Abraham regarding this land. They knew that God had promised a coming kingdom through the prophets, even though they did not understand at that moment what it meant. That became a motivation to them. Peter says the same thing to us in 2 Peter chapter 1. Listen what he says, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. He says, his divine power has granted to us, listen, all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us, listen to this, his precious and very great promises so that through them, so that through these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of lust. For this reason, for this reason, he says. What reason? Because we have these promises. Because the word of God is true. Because God is faithful to his word. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and self-control and brotherly kindness and love and on and on and on. And faith. This is a powerful truth of the Old Testament of the people of God, the nation of Israel. To their credit, there's much that we can say about Israel that is negative, but this is something very positive to be said of them. They saw the hand of God in their history, and they believed that God's work was bringing about his purposes in their lives at that time. This is a great quote that I came across in my study this week from one of the commentaries I was reading. It says this, thus in the stream of history is the undercurrent of the will of God that steers the history of his people in a given direction, guided by his grace and love for his people. It's a great quote, simple, but so powerful and so true, so true. The stream of history is the undercurrent of the will of God steering the history of God's people 
in a given direction. And I think to me, that was what I just, I, I, this week I thought of the most that encouraged and, and, and struck me the most was, I've always believed in the, in the sovereignty of God. We believe that. We, that's an easy, it's not easy to believe, but we, it's common. We believe it easily, commonly. But to tie that to the fact that it's for his people, all these things are happening, is, is a, a very powerful reality. COVID? can't see how that could be pestilence disease famine war read the book of revelation god's hand is at work not just on the earth bringing about judgment his hand is at work for his people molding them sanctifying them healing them in heart preparing them for the coming groom, bridegroom. Teaching them to war, to live by faith, because they're going to need all these things. We live in these crazy little vacuums of reality. We just kind of bounce around the walls of existence. Come to church and say we believe in God, but when it comes, the rubber meets the road, we cry and we moan and we groan and we whine and we complain and we walk away from God, some people, because God was not good and not, was not there. Oh, what an immature understanding, yes, of God and of the ways of God. So that's the first main emphasis. The second is this from these two books, and we'll look in a moment at the text. The theme of these two books is restoration. The restoration of three things, at least, in these two books. And we saw this last week in the video Matt showed from Bible Project, that there were three parallel stories running side by side, in a sense, through Ezra and through Nehemiah, under the leadership of three different men, Zerubbabel, and then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. But the theme of all of their work was that of restoration, they were restoring the temple. They were restoring, bringing about a restoration toward the law. And then they were restoring the walls of the city itself. And each of these represented something very important to the nation of Israel. The law, the temple, excuse me, was their place of worship. And why was that important? Because that's where atonement was made for sin. The law was the required ethic of God, a very holy and covenantal God. They knew that he was holy. They knew they were in covenant, and then they needed to know what he wanted from them. The law gave them understanding of that. And of course, the walls of the city, what did they provide beside protection? They gave them a distinguishing separation from other nations, a place of separation that would keep them from defilement or enslavement from their enemies. So the temple and the law and the walls were of paramount importance to the people of Israel. And so these three men set about to restore these three areas for the sake of God's people. And I want you to think about it for a moment that this was the return we're reading now, this account, 
of a people who had been in exile for 70 years. And among this first group to return with Sheshbazar, who I think, I think was also Zerubbabel. It's debatable. Some of the scholars say they're two different men. Sheshbazar was one man and Zerubbabel is another. Um, it's hard to see that they're not the same guy as you read the text, but that's not of great importance. But the first group that came back with Sheshbazar was probably about 50,000 people from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and also of the Levites. And of that 50,000, you've got to know that if they were in exile for 70 years, some of them had been in Israel, in Jerusalem, were taken into exile, and then came back. They were probably old, in their 80s or 90s, maybe, if they lived that long. But most of them were born in Babylon. Boy, would that be a challenge? to have been born in Babylon and then to be returning to the land of their fathers, to the land of their holy covenantal God. They were probably not wealthy, but they gave generously to the work. Chapter 2 records what they gave. And there were very, very few of them in comparison to the people who already lived in the land. There was a small group. There was a remnant, you could say. But I love this, and I pointed this out as we read through Ezra 1. But God had stirred their hearts to rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. God had stirred their hearts. And we, they, with them, they took the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple when he, when he destroyed it from Jerusalem, and he had put these vessels of worship in the houses of, house of his gods. They took those back, vessels of worship, basins of gold, silver, censers, plus free will offerings. So we have this amazing picture of people who had been in exile and were returning home after 70 years. And with them, they brought that which had once been holy, but since defiled, but was now to be restored to a place of holiness. That sounds like you and I. It's like man, that's what man is. Who was created sinless and then defiled and is now. You see this work of restoration? This is the theme that's woven. That God is restoring all things. They came to rebuild the temple, which, as I said, was central for their worship, where atonement was made for sin. Can you imagine? Listen to this now, if you could imagine this. No sacrifice had been offered to God for the 70 years they were in Babylon. The temple and the altar had been destroyed. That means the people had lived in their guilt for 70 years, and many, many died in their guilt for 70, 70 years. Remember the last time last week when you sinned and that guilt hit you instantly? Grief, remorse, shame, and just for a second, the guilt of sin. Can you imagine living with that all the time? having known what it felt like to be free and clean, even if they had to offer a sacrifice every day, which they did. I remember when I was a young kid and I went to confession as a Catholic. 
I think you make your first confession about the age of seven before your first communion. And I remember the day I made my first confession. And you got to know that I had a very tender conscience when I was a kid. And I went in that confessional, and I told the priest my sin, and he told me that I was forgiven if I said three Hail Marys and two Our Fathers. And I came out of that confessional, and I did it, and I felt clean. And I went home, and I still remember I told my mom, Mom, I feel clean. But it didn't last very long. And so I lived my whole life, as many of you did, prior to my conversion, predominantly with a sense of shame and with a sense of guilt because I knew what it felt like to be forgiven, even as a young boy, just for a moment. They lived with the shame and the guilt for all those years. This is why the book of Hebrews is so powerful, especially as a Jew would read it and understand it, because it brings a revelation of the atonement made by Christ. It was a once-for-all atonement, a once-for-all sacrifice. Listen to Hebrews 9, 24 through 26. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, like little confessionals with men sitting inside them, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer, Jesus would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, can you imagine a Jew reading that and understanding that? Or a Catholic Hebrews was the book that, that the Lord used to, to take me out of Catholicism after I got saved. Because I realized this was once for all. I don't need all this malarkey. I go right to God through Christ. I'm forgiven. He's made atonement once for all. And the book of Hebrews teaches me that it cleanses my conscience. What does the gospel say to us about the book of Ezra and its application today? To begin, we have to remember what we heard last week in that video as we watched it. The, the, the man who was narrating pointed out that each of the three stories ends somewhat anticlimactically. Why was that? Because he said it showed the need for a new heart that could only come through faith in Christ. Because the heart of the people did not change. Even though, even though reform was made by Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, even though there was a substantial work of restoration, it did not affect long-lasting change. Have you ever seen somebody who confesses Christ and their life never changes? Too often, haven't we? Why is that? Because their heart hasn't changed, probably because they are not fully regenerate, truly regenerate. Because someone told them, if you raise your hand, that's enough. That's not enough. There has to be faith in Christ, living faith, 
that he gives by his spirit so that you can believe. A new heart is the work of God in a man or a woman. Only God can bring about a change of heart. And so the restoration that they went through in Ezra and Nehemiah's time was not ever going to be complete. These works of restoration were only a foreshadowing of what would, listen, only what could only be fulfilled in Christ. These pictures of, of Zerubbabel's work and Ezra's work and Nehemiah's work, and we'll talk about each of them individually and what they were doing and why they were doing them and how that affects us. But their work, these works were only a foreshadowing of something that would only be fulfilled in Christ. They were never meant to be complete. God never intended for them to be enough. Because we know that the law, Paul teaches us in Galatians, is a tutor leading us to Christ. That the inability of our own hearts to do what is necessary leaves us desperate for grace and mercy that only comes through faith in Christ. Are you following me? Matt and I were talking this week about these truths and in, in these books. We said we too are a post-exilic people. We are a people who have come out of cap captivity and, and, and are living in freedom. We too were once slaves to sin, but now we are free. We've been freed, but not to return to a land, but freed to live wholeheartedly for God alone. Because we have been given that new heart. And so we know the Jews under Zerubbabel, and now we're in Ezra 1, were commissioned to rebuild their temple. And under Ezra, they were commissioned to restore the law of God to their hearts. And under Nehemiah, he was commissioned to rebuild the walls of the city. Brothers and sisters, we too have been commissioned for the work of restoration. You and I are Zerubbabel. You and I are Ezra. You and I are, ne are Nehemiah. But our commission is to preach the freedom of the gospel to every man, woman, and child who can hear it. That's the work of restoration that these, all these three examples were pointing toward. The ultimate restoration that comes through faith in Christ. Our work is to restore and to repair broken lives, broken families, broken cities, broken nations through the power of the gospel. You and I have been commissioned. That's what Matthew 28 is. It's a commissioning by Christ to go and take this gospel to every nation. And just as Cyrus, a king, commissioned Zerubbabel, and then Darius commissioned Nehemiah, so you and I have been commissioned by a king to go and to restore that which has been broken and lost. The gospel has been revealed in, in this book and in chapter one in the work of Zerubbabel, the first six chapters which recount the work of Zerubbabel and Ezra. The gospel has revealed, been revealed in that we now are the holy temple. 
We are the, the dwelling place of God. The foundation, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, has been laid. The foundation of the temple has been laid. By whom? Apostles and prophets. Christ being what? The cornerstone. And so even in, at this time, as Zechariah prophesies during the time of Zerubbabel's work and the people were discouraged and they quit working for a while, Zechariah prophesies, but I want you to hear his prophecy because his prophecy is not just for them at that moment, but his prophecy is seeing into the future. Listen to what he says in Zechariah chapter 4, if you would look at that with me, verses 6 through 10. As the Lord speaks to Zerubbabel, to, excuse me, to Zechariah, he says this to Zerubbabel. This is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Nothing, not even a mighty mountain, will stand in Zerubbabel's way. What was Zerubbabel doing? He's rebuilding a temple. Let me ask you, which temple? Well, in the historical context, it, it, the temple in Jerusalem. But is that what Zechariah is talking about? Uh-uh. He's talking about a different temple. Who is Zerubbabel? Well, we know historical context. It was a man. But maybe it's another man. Are you following me? Yes. Nothing, not even a mighty mountain, will stand in Zerubbabel's way. It will become a level plain before him. And when Zerubbabel sets the final stone of the temple in place, the people will shout, may God bless it, may God bless it. Then another message came to me from the Lord. Zerubbabel is the one who laid the foundation of this temple, and he will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of heaven's armies has sent me. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb land in Zerubbabel's hands. What happens here? Just as in all Old Testament prophecy, you're looking like at a series of mountain ranges through prophecy. You see the one in the right in the front that's visible. That's the obvious person or people to whom he's prophesying. But behind it are other ranges that speak of the purposes of God into the future in other ways. And in this context, he is definitely speaking to one man, Zerubbabel, but he's speaking of another man who I believe Zerubbabel foreshadows, who is Christ himself. What's the temple? We are the temple. We are the temple. The gospel speaks to Ezra. As we look at that, we'll get into that, the commission to restore the law. It speaks of the law of God. And we know the law as the ethic of God's reign, the ethic of God's kingdom on human hearts. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7 that the law is holy and righteous, and good. But he also tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 that the law before Christ came was a ministry of death. Remember, we're talking about restoration today. 
So when we read these books, we're not just looking at the work that Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah were doing. We're looking at the work of Christ, that each of these are pointing to Christ and his work of restoration to build a temple, to restore the law to human hearts, to build a city without walls. The law was a ministry of death because man could not obey it due to his sinful nature. But now Paul tells us that the law is written on our hearts as a ministry of life, written by the Spirit of God on a human heart. Jesus came to fulfill the law that Ezra was so concerned about, and he did fulfill it in his obedience, and then he wrote it on human hearts. What does that mean? That means that you love what God loves and you hate what God hates. And your heart desires righteousness. If you are in Christ, your heart desires righteousness. Again, you're not perfect, but that's what your heart longs for. So the gospel impacts the blessings of the new covenant and the law because it's written on the heart of man now through faith. And of course, the gospel regarding the work of Nehemiah speaks to us about the walls of the city being restored, being rebuilt. The walls protected and separated the people of God from their enemies. They allowed a distinction between God's people and the world. The wall separated the people of God from the world. And so that today, I believe the walls represent the importance of the church. The church is God's provision for his people. It's a place of safety. It's a place of distinction. It's a place where we find our fellowship, where we find commonality, we find community with those who are like-hearted and like-minded. That's why today this, this, this belief that you don't need the church is a bunch of baloney. It's dangerous. It's foolishness. You must have the safety of the identifying community of the people of God, the distinction that goes with it. How will the world know us? But what's amazing is that now the church has become a city that does not have walls. It's a place where there is identity and safety, yes, but now anyone can enter who has faith in Christ. And that's why God said he would build a city without walls. That city is the church, but it's open to all. It has nothing to do with nationality, color, race, past creed, creedal belief. The identifying feature of it is a mark of God on the people of God. So this work of restoration that is seen in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, brothers and sisters, continues today. Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah were only foreshadowing that which would be accomplished in Christ. It continues by God's Spirit as he works in and through his church today. History is being guided by God toward the restoration of all things. 
Say that with me. History is being guided by God toward the restoration of all things. Get that in your heart and mind. And you and I are right smack dab in the middle of it today. The time in which you and I are living, incredible times. Changing times. Interesting times. Frustrating times. Grievous times. What other adjectives you want to use? But they're God times. What kind of men and women will, will rise up and, and live in these times? What kind of men and, what kind of men and women will, will rise up and engage for God in these times? You see, it, it takes light. It takes light to your heart and mind so that you will understand these things and then have faith to rise up. And I want to close just by reminding us of this one truth that we read in the very beginning, that it was God who stirred their hearts to rebuild. Can I ask you this question today? Has God stirred your heart to engage? Has God stirred your heart to involvement? And I'm not just talking, I'm not talking about just being in the church, involved in the church. I'm talking about in God have you, has he stirred your heart to be involved in your life? Maybe it begins, first of all, with your marriage, with your family, your invo- involvement in God toward your friends, toward the unbelieving in your life. Of course, involvement with the body of Christ. Has God stirred your heart? Stand with me if you would. Let's ask him to. You want, to, you want to do it now? Okay. Sure. Okay. If you feel comfortable, would you just lift your hands in a place of openness to God? Stir our hearts, O Lord. We can have all the good intention we want, Lord. We can turn over every new leaf on New Year's we want. We can mean as mean well. We can have, have a desire for good. All these things which are good things. But apart from you stirring us, Lord, we know nothing of any significance will happen. But when you stir a man or a woman's heart, oh God, things change. They deny themselves. They seek you. They, they fast, they pray, they have boldness, they quit sinning in the same ways over and over again. Stir our hearts, Lord. Stir us, Lord. For the sake of the kingdom today. Yes, Lord. And we yield to the river that is God's providential work on the earth today. We are in that river, Lord. It's flowing. It's at work. History is his story. It's God's actions. We are in the midst of the river, Lord. Help us to give our hearts fully to it. Father, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Matt's got something he wants to say. Please, son.
ask that you guys just stay in the place of faith right here in this moment because I felt like I just was stirred that there was, yeah, that's right, there was a question that was stirring within me as things were coming to a wrap, and the question is this was, how will you respond? And I felt like while Rick was speaking specifically pertaining to the present-day circumstances, that, and, and even perhaps I felt like there was a particular emphasis for those who are younger. In light of what is happening, and I loved what you were just saying, the, the, the river or the stream of the providence of God, and we find ourselves standing in the stream, and some are trying to dam up the stream to keep it from continuing lest they be what they perceive to be swept away. Others are trying to build a bridge to get across it, while others remain on the shore of the side of it, afraid of what the stream would hold. And there's, there's a, a quote that I have long loved, and it says that we must find our story in God's greater story, which is what Rick was speaking of this morning, that God's story has been written and is being written in our lives from moment to moment. But in the present circumstances, particularly the pandemic, and some of you who are younger, who are in college, who are graduating high school, you find yourselves at a bit of a crossroads, almost as though all of what you had planned is now becoming torn apart. Because the circumstances that you thought were going to be in front of you are no longer in front of you. And I just felt like God was saying this morning, how will you respond in this moment in light of what Rick said? In light of the reality of God's providence for each and every one of us, and that's an applicable question, but I felt particularly for those, again, who are at this space of young families seeking careers, graduating high school, and suddenly you find yourself not being able to go to college in person, not being able to pursue certain things that you thought you were going to pursue, and everything just feels flipped on its head and out of control. But what Rick was saying this morning is it's not out of control. It's precisely in God's control today. And what you need to determine is how will you respond? Will you find your story in God's bigger story, or will you continue to try to write it parallel to what he's doing? And I just felt like God is saying, if you today, like, I'm not going to put an age marker on it, but whatever that course of your life is that you're on, if you find yourself today circumstantially at a Y or a crossroad or suddenly the road is obliterated by the rushing river, like, how will you proceed? What, how will you respond? And so I just felt like today, if I could pray just to, if I can pray again concerning this. And if, if you're there today, I, I want you just to come to a place of faith with me and ask God this morning to help you find your story in his story. So God, I pray, I pray now. I thank you for just this word of truth and we receive it with gladful hearts today. And, and I, I ask, Father, concerning what I just sense you impressing upon me, as, as a leader of those whom you've called to this church, Lord, that you would help by the grace of God for each of us to find our place in your story. Lord, what, what is the story that you are writing? And Lord, where do we fit? And I, I pray for those today that find themselves discouraged, disillusioned, frustrated with present day temporal circumstances that seem to have thwarted their plans. Lord, that this would be an opportune moment that this is, they would see this as a grace moment, Lord God, that you are doing something that is different, perhaps, or you're doing something that looks a bit differently than they might have thought. 
Lord, that we would step in in a place of faith. Just step into that stream of providence, Lord, without trying to damn it, without trying to cross it in some way that wasn't meant. But Lord, we are meant to live within it and almost to be swept along with it in a place, Lord, where we recognize that only you are in control. And so I pray this day, Lord, for my brothers and sisters who struggle in light of the pandemic, who struggle with future plans, who struggle with a sense of identity even because they no longer understand or, or see themselves to be in light of the plans that they once had. Lord, that you, would, that you would now just encourage them and fill them with the Spirit of God. So speaking to their life, Lord, giving them that identity, giving them that security. And Lord, I pray that they would begin to now pursue their life's choices in light of what you are doing. Lord, speak to each one of our hearts, I pray, that this message, this is a message of hope, church, that this message of hope, that God is in control, that God cares for his people, that God is acting on behalf of his people from generation to generation, Lord, what a message of hope that is. And may we not only live it, but may we also speak it, Lord, to the glory of your name. Do this, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.